I am going to be talking something that I've talked several years ago from the book of James. But as I have looked at what's going on in our church, I am burdened by the number of people who are going through severe trials in our midst. It is staggering. The last time I taught, I went through a laundry list of things that I've seen just since I've come to Lakeside in 2007. And this week, there's even more. The issues that Hazel is going through this week. Gaten Ross has been a faithful member of Lakeside. His health is declining and doing very poorly. There are other people that I know are struggling with cancer and things are not improving. It just seems like there are trials after trials. And I know of people who are struggling in so many areas. And, and it just burdens my heart to see how heavy the burdens are on Christians. And I recognize that God has ordained these things, and part of the burdens that we carry are simply an offshoot of living in a fallen world. I mean, we live in a world that is corrupted by sin. It is corrupted through and through. I was thinking based on a conversation I had last weekend in a totally different area, I was just thinking about the fact that I don't think a lot of people recognize fully how comprehensive sin affects this world we live in. It affects the plants, the animals, the bacteria. It affects everything around us. And as Christians, we are not immune from all of this. I feel like a broken record at times because I've said it over and over, but yet I see time and time again that in the midst of trials, and it can happen to me, it can happen to any of us, we start to think, wait a minute, don't I deserve better than this? Why is this happening to me? And there's a sense in which it's correct. You don't deserve necessarily to suffer and all those things. But there's another sense when the issue is we live in a fallen, corrupted world. That's the why. That's why these things are happening. And as I have pondered and thought about this, and, and it's on my heart, I keep coming back to this concept of trials. And so at the beginning of the book of James is where we're going to go, James chapter 1. And I'm mindful of the fact that there are a lot of verses in the Bible that we've heard enough that they all stand out and we recognize it instinctively. And I think James chapter 1 in part is that way. When I first came here, the very first book I taught through in this class was the book of James. And I've shared before the reason I have an affinity for the book of James, I think, is because when I was first saved, that was the first book I ever heard taught start to finish. And I knew how much of an impact it had on my life. And so it always has a special place, but I've gone back and I've been thinking more and more about the beginning of the book of James, and so I thought I would just share some thoughts from that this morning. I'm going to read the very beginning of chapter 1. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then I do, I mean, I've taught this before with the outline, but I'm just going to kind of walk through it a little bit, because it's more of an issue of sharing an encouragement from my heart than it is dissecting all of this in minute detail. 
begins in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-binded man, unstable in all his ways. Part of what jumps out to me as I read these initial verses and as I reflect on these verses and as I look at the verses in the context of the life that we live on this sin-tainted planet, it just jumps out at me how applicable even those opening verses are to our daily lives. And it starts from the very first verse, and then it continues throughout, and it's so intensely practical, it really is a primer for all of us of a very basic approach to dealing with the struggles that we have. Again, we are not unique in the trials that we face. It's odd that it took me, I'm now 48, it took me 48 years to be aware of this. I've been a believer since 1993, so what is that, 22 years as a believer. It took me this long to figure out that there is no such thing as normal. I've lived a lot of years waiting for things to go back to normal. And... I'm slow. Uh, I mean, I, I figure some things out quick. I'm slow on the uptake here. There is no normal. And it goes back to what I said. Because we live in a sin-filled world. And sin and its tentacles, not only does it grip our own hearts, but it's permeating the society in which we live such that I realize there is no normal that we're waiting for. If you wait for your troubles to stop to focus on God, well, then you're never going to focus on God. If you wait for things to calm down so that you can focus on God, you're never going to focus on God because there is always something that seems to be stirring the pot of life. It may be in our marriages. It may be in our jobs. It may be with our children. It may be with our grandchildren. It may be with our ministries. It may be with our neighbors. It may be with our parents. But there's always something happening. There's always something going wrong. I try and think through to a time in my life, was there ever a time when things were completely at peace? And I can't recall. Because somebody was always sick. might have been my mom. It might have been my grandma. There was always some challenge at work. Not so much, well, challenges at Lakeside are different, but when I used to be a lawyer, there was a lot of stress in that. Seems like something is always happening, and what I've come to realize is that's not unique to me. That's all of us. And so when I come to a passage like this in James, a few thoughts jump out at me, and I just, in the midst of what seems to be a season of our brothers and sisters going through trials, I want to give you 
some things to think about. If you're in the midst of these trials, to try and call your attention to it. If you're not in the midst of the trial, I want you to pay attention because you're going to be. If I could go back and get all the prayer guides from the time I came here to now, our names cycle through there. You feel for some people that never leave the prayer guide. But we're all addressed by this text. Now, the starting point that jumps out at me, and it has to go back to the idea of, and I'll just summarize it with the idea of humility. I think part of the reason we struggle at times to respond properly to trials is because of our pride. Going back to what I said before, we think we deserve something different. We think things should be better. I know for me, quite often, it's been, well, I planned better than this. How did this happen? I really thought this through. I really took all the right steps. How did this fall apart? But the writer of this letter was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning he grew up with Jesus. He grew up in the same household, and, and I've got the passages in my notes. I'm, I'm not following my notes closely. I'm just talking to you. But you would find in scriptures that while Jesus was walking on the earth, James did not believe in him as the Messiah. He didn't believe he was the Son of God. And you could imagine, I mean, if you got brothers and sisters, if, if your brother said, hey, I'm, I'm God, how far is that going to go? You know, that, that gets you nowhere. So you can imagine Jesus, it had to be really annoying, the fact, because he never did anything wrong. He really didn't disobey. Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> Jesus doesn't talk back. What's going on? So his brothers and sisters had a, had a tough one right in the house with him. But James didn't believe when he was on the earth. In fact, there were times where his brothers and sisters thought he was nuts, according to the scriptures. That's probably a little harsh, but they didn't think he was lucid. They didn't think his thinking was, they didn't think he was thinking clearly. But by the time James writes this letter, he had come to faith, and now he's calling himself a bondservant of his half-brother. Because he recognizes what is his true relationship with Jesus Christ. The word that is translated bondservant here, it's a Greek word that probably more accurately should be translated slave. John MacArthur wrote a whole book about that called Slave. I heard him preach a sermon on that a couple of times. But the reason I'm focusing on this is because this provides perspective for all of us as we navigate this treacherous life on earth. James had come to recognize that Jesus wasn't just his half-brother, they didn't just share the same mother. He recognized that Jesus was Lord. Jesus was God. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's synonymous. That's wrapping together. Certainly the two persons, two of the three persons of the Trinity, but this isn't one or the other. This is both. They are unity. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind us of that because I think it's easy for all of us to miss that as things are going wrong because at times things get away from us trials come upon us and we don't feel like we deserve it we don't understand where it's coming from at that point the focus should be on Jesus Christ 
It shouldn't be on the trials. It shouldn't be on the circumstances. It should be on Jesus Christ, remembering day by day who we are. I think a lot of us, for appropriate reasons, are very thankful to be citizens of the USA. I know when I've been traveling, I like that I have a U.S. passport. And when I come back to America, I like getting in the line that says U.S. citizen and I get to walk in. There's a comfort in that. And part of the comfort comes from the fact that I recognize that if something goes wrong, I have certain protections. I recognize it's not perfect. There are still trials outside of the U.S., but there's a, there's a value of being a citizen of the United States because, at, at least in theory, if something happened, the United States could bring all of their resources to bear to protect me as one of their citizens. That is a minuscule hope in comparison to us being servants of Jesus Christ. We have the resources of the living God at our disposal. That doesn't mean that God will put them into practice in exactly the way we would want. But it does mean no matter what's going on, if we know Christ, there's a certain comfort and peace just right there. There's an anchor to being a slave of Jesus Christ. There's an anchor to being his servant. In the midst of trials, try not to think so much of yourself as a as a husband or as a wife or as a child or as an employee or as an employer or as an American or as whatever. Think of yourself in relation to Christ and it will help center you and ground you to thinking correctly about your circumstances. So if you can focus and you can day by day wake up with a recognition, Lord, I am your servant. I am your slave. I don't have any independent rights. I am here for you to use in whatever way you see fit. It provides us a perspective when trials start coming. And I think that is the the undergirding, the underpinning of verse 2, which is one of the most simple but also astoundingly difficult passages you'll come across. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when life is falling apart. Consider it all joy when the wheels are coming off and you barely are hanging on by a thread. This idea of consider it all joy, it is as expansive as it sounds. Nothing but joy, complete joy. Now, I want to be very careful here because joy isn't a giddy happiness that comes at a birthday party. We just had a surprise birthday party last night for Heather. And when all the girls screamed and Heather smiled, and that's a, that's a happiness. That's not what's being talked about. In fact, it would be odd if your reaction to the suffering and death of a, of a loved one or the suffering and illness of other people was that you're walking around laughing. It would make you appear uncallous and uncaring. This doesn't have as a concept this idea of hilarity, jocularity, where we're chuckling and laughing about everything. That's not it at all. 
This goes back to our status as slaves of the Most High God, of servants of the Most High God. This is an inner peace that says, whatever is coming at me, my God can take care of me. My God, whom I serve, who I've given my life to, can handle what's coming my way. I think all of us, particularly the older you get and the more people you've seen die and the more people you've seen suffer, we long for the day when there's no more death and there's no more dying and there's no more tears. I cannot wait till we are at that point. I would be thrilled if the Lord returned today and took the church. It would be such a joy. But we don't know when that's going to occur. And it might not occur in our lifetime. It might not occur in my kid's lifetime. And so we've got to be prepared to deal with life as it happens because the sin-filled world can't be kept at bay. I'm teaching a parenting class and I'm trying to convey some thoughts to the parents and I was using an illustration and I've thought about it. It would be a little bit easier if what God told us to do is wall ourselves off in a big compound and only have Christians there. Now, if we're honest, well then within the compound we'd all have to have our little walled off area because we'll get on each other's nerves pretty quickly. But Christianity is not about being isolated and just put in a box and waiting for Jesus. We've got to embrace what God has put in front of us and what we're being taught by these verses is that the trials that we're enduring are not happenstance. In other words, God is not in heaven looking at our circumstances going, oh man, sorry about that. I didn't know. Well, that one caught me off guard. A few years ago, there was a heresy that became very, very popular, and the idea was called open theology. And so-called evangelicals were propagating this, and the idea was they were trying to explain how come Christians have to endure things that don't always make sense. Their solution was, well, God really can't stop it. He'd like to. Golly, he wish he could help. But he's chosen to restrain himself from acting, and so things just happen, and, you know, God wishes it was different. God's sad with you. That is heresy. That's not an innocent misunderstanding. That is an intentional distortion of the truth. Not surprisingly, it died down very quickly. But it wasn't a new heresy, and its tentacles can still be felt. What we're being told by these verses is that no matter what the trial is, God is in it. This terminology of various trials, different translations say it a different way, but basically anything you can think of that's a difficulty or hardship is included with that term. Everything. And verse 3 really shows us why we should have joy. And this really ties in to the teaching that we just covered in part in Hebrews chapter 12 on the discipline of God. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The idea here 
is that when God allows trials to come into our lives, he's trying to change us for the better. He's trying to grow us and make us more than we are now. He wants us to mature. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not talking about perfection in the sense of we will never have sin again and we can have perfect sanctification on the earth. What it's talking about is we will be mature believers if we allow God to work his will in the midst of trials. And this is the thought that I'm trying to encapsulate and I'm not necessarily articulate at times when I'm trying to put a bunch of thoughts together and synthesize it. But here's my encouragement to you if you're going through a trial right now. If you're going through a trial right now, it's evidence that God loves you and he cares for you. If you're a believer and you're going through a trial, it's evidence that he's not done with you. The scriptures say that God who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Part of his process of completing the work that he's done in you is allowing you to endure trials. The blessing we have is perspective. Because you know what? If you've got a room full of unbelievers of equal size, they've got the same trials. They face cancer and death. Their kids don't obey and run off into drugs and alcohol. They have bad jobs and they have financial issues. The problem for them is they're not slaves of Jesus Christ. So they have no hope. Every time I hear of a suicide, it's always a sad thing to me. I think it's a mark of God's grace that there's not more suicide amongst unbelievers. Because life truly has no meaning. But for a Christian, the reason we can have an inner contentment, an inner peace, even in the midst of hardships, is because we understand that God is sovereign, He's in control, and He's using this not to defeat us, but to grow us. He's not trying to squash us. He's trying to mature us. But it's all about perspective and understanding where we stand. Now, all of this presupposes that we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Meaning, it presupposes that we're believers. That's the reference earlier, considered all joy my brethren. The idea is he's writing to believers If you don't know Jesus Christ, then everything I'm saying would be pointless because your big issue is not your trials. Your big issue is your salvation, your soul. But if you know Jesus Christ and you see the unity of the Scriptures, all of this is pointing in the same direction. All of what we covered in Hebrews chapter 11 is helping you learn how to have joy. What we've been talking about in chapter 12 of running the race, of continuing forward even when we're tired, even when there's hurdles, of recognizing and not running from God's discipline which is just anything he brings into our life to refine us and to purify us. You see how all these fit together. It's all the same message. It's all the same hope. And what strikes me over and over is the fact that the scriptures repeat themselves time and time again 
Because it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to lose heart. Now, I'm running out of time faster than I had expected. So I'm going to sort of jump to the end. Because really, all of what I said now is getting to this point. Well, that was a silly statement. Of course it's getting to this point. Let me state that a different way. My goal was to point you towards something that will help you when you can agree with all the words that I've just said and you can agree with the scripture, but you're finding it hard to put it into practice. Because I have a feeling if I gave you all a test or if I asked you to raise your hand, you would agree with the scriptures that says this. But for many of us, you're going, but how? How? I've shared it in different contexts. One of the most encouraging, simple prayers that's in the scriptures, a gentleman talking to Jesus, and Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think about that so many times when my heart is swayed. And I'll just come to verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let me stop there for a moment. Because this is the crux of what we face in the midst of trials. Any of you lacks wisdom, it doesn't mean here knowledge of an encyclopedic nature. What it means is if you don't know how to do what I just told you to do. If you don't know how to consider it joy, if you don't know, well, what step do I need to take so that I can endure this? Lord, I want you to mature me, but I don't know what to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask of God. What is that saying? It's saying prayer is the key to all of this. Prayer is the key to all of it. I can tell you, and it's to my own shame, quite often the last thing I do is pray. Because I'm so confident in my ability either to figure something out with my intellectual capacities or just to endure something through my own strength. I was raised in an environment where you don't give up, you just endure it. Everybody's life is tough, keep going. But those aren't commendable things when it causes me to neglect the one thing that God says. Come to me and ask. Pray to me. Because it's a promise. If you come and ask of God, what does it say about him? Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. What will be given to him? God will give you the ability to know which way do I step next. Lord, what do I do next? What's a beautiful picture here, though, is this. Some of us have been Christians for a long time, and we should know better. If we were our own kids, we'd be saying, come on, you know, well, not in the head, but you'd be saying, I've told you a thousand times. I've got to tell you again. Don't you know by now you've been in church for all these years and you don't know what to do? What this is telling us is, In that situation, don't be embarrassed, don't turn away. Not only does God give generously, meaning he's going to lavish 
answers to you. And I tend to think those answers normally come from his word or through his people. Pastors and friends who are Christians. But it says he gives to all generously and without reproach. Meaning he doesn't slap your hand for asking. He doesn't say I already told you that. You've asked me this ten times and I told you go somewhere else. You need to learn. No. Even in those circumstances, God stands willing to help you and he will show you what to do next. Thinking that at some point I, I want to finish the book of Hebrews is important to me. I, I want to teach through the rest of the material. But I recognize I also want to spend some time talking about prayer because it is something that we all know we need to do more of Recently taught from Colossians, a good prayer that you could go through, but it goes beyond the mechanics and the nuts and bolts. It comes to the point to where we're breathing in a prayerful attitude. So let me encourage you, if you're in the midst of a trial right now, if you are struggling, let me encourage you to pray. Be honest with God. We don't feel super spiritual all the time. There are times, and I've used this analogy before, I think I've used it in messages, I've certainly talked to people, where as a kid, granny and grandpa had a little shed and it had a tin roof on it. And there are times when you can feel like your prayers are just bouncing off a tin roof right back at you. It sounds hollow. Can I assure you it only sounds that way? God hears them. So let me encourage you. If you're going through a trial and going through a difficult time, don't overlook prayer. You can do this. God wants to work in you. He's showing you his love. He cares for you. And for the rest of us, we have the opportunity to come alongside brothers and sisters who are struggling And be an encouragement to them. That's what we talked about last time in covering Hebrews. Is how do we encourage people. So let me close our time in prayer. And then Lord willing next week we'll pick back up where we left off in Hebrews. Dear Heavenly Father we thank you for caring for us. Lord the trials of life weigh us down. There are times we feel like we're sinking. And perhaps it feels at times like there is no hope. Lord, when our minds go in that direction, we know it's not true. Lord, as your children, there's never a time where you leave us or forsake us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are enduring hardships right now, that you will help them to have a perspective consistent with James chapter 1. Lord, not to be happy in them per se, Lord, because it's sad when our family members suffer. It's sad when they hurt. But rather, Lord, let us have that inner contentment, that inner joy that is just a reflection of our confidence in a good God who loves us and cares for us. Lord, I pray that you would mature us, every one of us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves 
to call out to you when we need help. Lord, I pray that we could turn to you, that we could turn to you in faith, and that we could believe even in the midst of our unbelief. Lord, Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to hurt our weaker brothers and sisters. Lord, give us the ability to come alongside one another and encourage one another. Pray that you would help us to endure the hardships that we face in this sin-filled world. And I pray that we could do it in a way that gives you glory and honor. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.